Mrs. Mary Peckinpah, M.D., 910 Locust Street, St. Louis, Missouri, besides a general practice, gives special attention to all diseases of women and of the duties of an accoucheuse. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 21. Happy Labor Day! In keeping with the spirit of that holiday, listen to this article published 150 years ago today in the woman's rights newspaper, The Revolution. Woman's Labor Editors of The Revolution When the sentiments and the popular usages of society will allow woman to dress and pursue such avocations as are most congenial to her taste and natural capacity, there will be a wider field opened for physical and spiritual development. There will be an equalization of labor and wages, in which there is so much difference now, to the great disparagement of woman and to the demoralization of man. The innovations upon established usages and the radical sentiments of the age in which we live are hastening the introduction of a change in the sphere of woman's labor, or rather an extension of her present sphere, so as to afford her an opportunity equal with man of seeking and obtaining employment suited to her taste and qualifications. There are thousands of positions, both of a mechanical and of an intellectual nature, which now command high prices for men, which could be filled quite as acceptably by females, if they were allowed to compete for such positions, the same as men. The New York Sun said recently that women have been very successful as compositors in that city and are employed to great advantage in several large establishments at wages varying from 11 to $13 per week. Other occupations such as press work, binders, booksewers, and gilders, engraving, photograph coloring, telegraphing, and tailoring are becoming more extensively followed by women than formerly. The post office and a thousand and one other public offices could be filled as acceptably and more trustfully by women than by their present incumbents. In view of these facts, which are stubborn and incontrovertible, it would be wise in communities and in government to throw wide open the doors to female enterprise and ingenuity. Cardington, Ohio. T. M. Ewing. Hugh here. So if you've listened to episodes 3 and 20, you've already got some background on The Revolution, the woman's rights newspaper published by Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Parker Pillsbury starting in January of 1868. 
The paper was initially financed by George Francis Train, an odiously egomaniacal industrialist, public speaker, and race baiter whose name was, to his contemporaries, easily as recognizable as Mark Twain. Hugh, my dude, you're asking yourself, isn't today's episode about your interview with Sally Rush Wagner, Ph.D., executive director of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation of Fayetteville, New York? Why are you reading me articles from The Revolution? I want to hear the interview you promised me. Okay, okay, you've got a point, but bear with me. The article you just heard was printed in the September 3rd, 1868 issue of The Revolution, along with every other article and advertisement in today's episode. Why did I choose that particular document as a source? Well, because it turned out to be a treasure trove of material that's relevant to the interview coming up. To see just how relevant, check out this next article, written by Mrs. Matilda Jocelyn Gage herself. Spiritual Philosophy by Mrs. M. E. G. Gage As a fundamental proposition, I assert that woman, in a typically representative view, is superior to man. The will and the understanding are the interior principles of the human being. Of these, the innermost interior, or will, the soul principle, from which all actions derive life and come into being, has woman as its type. The will and the true moral life are one. From this vital principle, the understanding has its quality. The understanding has man as its type, and by virtue of its exterior position is more quickly recognized by the superficial observer than the will. For the same cause, clothes catch the eye first, and are by weak persons the one thing respected. The understanding and the mental life are one. The will is the soul principle, the understanding the body principle. In actual life, woman corresponds to the soul, man corresponds to the body. Three ruling elements have prevailed in the world, more distinctive in their characteristics than those of any geological epoch. They may be called force, cunning, and truth. The age of force is the age of bodily slavery. The age of cunning is the age of spiritual slavery. The age of truth is the age of freedom. Absolute truth not only destroys bodily slavery, but breaks asunder all bonds that imprison men's minds and souls. First to manifest itself was mental freedom, breaking away from old customs of thought. Still, men's wills were enchained. The well-known and apt-quoted Galileo's recantation is an example. The understanding as shown by science, walked before the will or individual freedom was recognized. The bonds of force are never so strong or so deftly woven as those of cunning. Science made rapid progress before the worth of the individual began to be recognized. Even now, power crushes all free aspiration where it can, not only in social life, in political life, but most terribly in religious life. Ordinary men are, everywhere, and especially in monarchical countries and under spiritual despotisms, termed the common herd, the masses, and are looked upon as a sea whose bounds are set to go thus far and no farther. 
In the age of truth, men question authority and accept no belief, social, political, or religious, unless upon proof. Church and state here fall apart. A certain kind of unity prevails through these ages, as positive in its form as that which prevails through a geological epoch, and also like geological epochs, these periods in the world's history need to be looked upon from two points of view, for, like them, they bear one general character throughout. Yet they are, in their variations and gradual changes, but progressive steps in the world's history. The world has not yet reached its acme. Physical power is the prior, belongs distinctively to the period of force, and precedes the domain of intellect and morals. This is the rule of muscle, the physically strong over the physically weak. The Samsons, with hands on pillars, overthrow and crush all in their power. Mental power is the secondary, but there comes a time when the moral element rules. Experience in the race ascends. There has been a regular sequence in human development which has occasionally received a sudden impetus from some extraordinary or out-of-the-way event that has sent an individual or a nation, and through them the race, far ahead. These changes, still carrying out the geological comparison, may be termed eras. Prominent among them during the epoch of force are warriors, and the decisive battles of the world Arbella and Salamis, Joan of Arc, Waterloo, and Gettysburg. There came a day when intellect began to rule, and then the understanding enabled cunning to outwit force. The individual or nation with the large brain and weak body conquered or superseded the individual or nation of strong body and less intellect. This was a step in advance for the world, and yet but a step. Superior to force and cunning exists an element of power or control known as truth or the right. While force rules and during the era of cunning, little heed is paid to this principle. To avoid being misunderstood, I will here say that these three epochs of force, cunning, and truth, though distinct in their nature, are not discrete periods but continuous and intermingling, yet one has at times prevailed so much above the others as to make its epoch plainly marked. During the epoch of cunning, various forms of religious tyranny hold sway. Caste here is the great power. India has been the point of attraction to men's gaze, but no more justly than should have been Christendom. Feudal tenure was a system of caste ordained by cunning. The Inquisition was its ultimate. Indulgences were among its bonds. The theory that one set of men, by virtue of their office, were inferior to other men, universally enchained minds during this epoch. The Reformation was an outbreak against cunning. The discovery of the art of printing was another event which sent men far ahead. The great eras in the world's history have been when God has revealed himself to man anew and enabled him to hold a different and fuller understanding of his relations to his creator. It has been at these eras that moral progress has taken a sudden leap forward. 
Abraham and Moses, and the advent of Christ, and the illumination of Swedenborg have been great tidal waves which loosened men from the grasp of force and cunning, and opened truth to their view. As woman is the type of the will, so her condition in life through past ages, the way she has been regarded spiritually, intellectually, morally, and physically, has answered to the common idea of the will. Back of the external thoughts lie the motives of life, the innate tendency. This is with many persons a hidden or unconscious will, although it governs the whole thought and action of mankind. The willpower has always been a mystery. Divines have written and philosophers explained, and still the world has avowed its ignorance upon it. Ages ago, men settled on their belief as to the understanding. The understanding has been deified. Daniel Webster was blasphemously known as the godlike. The will has been misunderstood, and thence misrepresented. Thus with woman. Arguments against phrenology have been adduced from the fact that as we descend in the scale of animal life, the front of the head, or organs of intellect, retain their prominence, while the back, or what is called the region of the propensities, rapidly decreases. This is because the intellectual, reasoning, or understanding facilities are not the highest faculties. This superior position is held by the will, intentions or motives in man, the desires in beasts. The animal of few desires is inferior to the one of many. Infidels have drawn arguments against a future state of existence for man from illustrations of the intellect possessed by beasts, i.e., from their reason. While one class of philosophers have strenuously claimed that animals were governed solely by instinct, this other class have brought up instance after instance, showing the exercise of reasoning faculties, and these not only in regard to what are termed the superior animals, but also in regard to the inferior animals. But an angry beast does not refrain from kicking or biting, because told it is wrong to do so. A whip or a wisp of hay are the motives they comprehend. A beast understands the rewards and punishments of the present life, not of the future one. He is, in fact, a beast from lack of the will power. He has no soul. Hugh here. Hey, don't look at me. I'm a philosophy dunce. The most insightful comment I can come up with is, duh, it sounds kinda like Plato? I mean, the way she so strenuously tries to map aspects of the concrete to the metaphysical and then draw conclusions about the concrete. Metaphor, that's the word I'm looking for. For Plato, and at least in this case, for Matilda Jocelyn Gage, metaphor was a powerful tool that allowed a person to draw scientific inferences and value judgments about the physical universe. Most of the rhetoric in her article went over my head, but I think I maybe kind of got the basic point, which seems to be that men are representatives of a more primitive developmental stage than women. Anyway, that article caught my eye because it was written by Matilda Jocelyn Gage, the focal point of Sally Roche Wagner's work. 
But that's far from the only reason this issue of the revolution is so relevant to today's interview. Remember the articles about Indian troubles that I read during the last few episodes? Well, check this out. The Indian Troubles in Kansas In their pleasant homes of security and plenty, it seems difficult for the Eastern people to realize those old scenes of murder and carnage, which were once enacted under their own vine and fig tree, but have long since passed into tradition, to be known only through the pen of the historian. Longfellow and Cooper have presented the Indian character in the light of poetry and romance, till the world seems to think the Indian incapable of anything mean or dishonorable, and is disposed to attribute all evil growing out of their discord with the white settlers to some unjust encroachment on the part of the latter. But the late outrage in Kansas is enough to sicken the heart and discourage all immigrants who are seeking on this western prairie to build up new homes. For the past week, the counties of Lincoln and Ottawa, portions of each, lying within the boundary line of lands granted to the Union Pacific Railway, have been in a condition of terror caused by the horrible onslaught of four tribes of Indians, Cheyennes, Kiowas, Sioux, and Arapahoes, who came suddenly upon the defenseless and unsuspecting settlers dwelling in supposed security, scalping and outraging not only men, but women and children, with promiscuous cruelty, of which the Wyoming massacre may be considered a fair parallel. From those who have been to the scene, we learn that twelve were found dead, and many more wounded, who will, probably, not recover, and others were still missing. Quite a number of captives were taken and carried off. Only yesterday, depredations were committed within sight of the troops at Fort Hayes. A large band attacked a Mexican train near the fort, captured 150 mules, and rode off in triumph. Murder and plunder seem to be their ruling spirit, and their incarnate ideas are carried out with a zeal and purpose that is truly frightful. The secret of all this lies somewhere. Where is it? These tribes have just been furnished by the officers of the government with arms and munitions of war, whose uses have been for the terrible outrages herein related. One of our informants on the subject says, It is expected that another peace commission will be appointed, who will treat with them as heretofore, at an increase of cost to the government, but we opine that when the history of the 19th century is written, the results of what has already been will be the blackest page. The abuses of the Indian Bureau have long since shown themselves in a manner much to be deplored. I am not surprised that the poor savage, actuated by none but the lowest instincts, should be thus driven to avenge himself for the cruel wrongs he is not too stupid to understand, but we must lament that the innocent are the sufferers instead of the guilty. It is not the poor settlers who are to blame for these horrible depredations, but the government officers, the Indian agents, who come out here for self-aggrandizement, to defraud the government and cheat the Indians, by systems of dishonesty already too glaring to be concealed. They rob the Indian with one hand, and pat him on the back with the other, crying, Peace! Peace! where there is no peace, and will be none, 
until justice is meted out to the savage and lawful protection to the defenseless settlers. Only a few weeks ago, the revolution was called upon to record some of the shameful frauds perpetrated on the Indians, and now we have this horrible picture of their cruel mode of revenge. Can the government do nothing to remedy this evil? Must these responsible offices be held by scheming men who are void of all honesty or feeling? Let those distinguished individuals who fail to realize the actual condition of these frontier settlers come out for a while and experience the trials and dangers which these pioneers, many of them women, are called upon to pass through, and they will not be so ready to pen their peaceful paragraphs, to have them read at morning meals where there is no scarcity of food and danger is not imminent. Junction City Kansas, August 19, 1868. Historic headlines will return after a brief word from our sponsor. Matilda A. McCord, 513 Chestnut Street, St. Louis, Missouri, keeps on hand a full assortment of spiritual and liberal books, pamphlets, and periodicals, also a supply of stationery, etc., the patronage of friends and the public generally is respectfully solicited. We now return to Historic Headlines. Like I said in previous episodes, if the news reports are any indication, even the most liberal progressive people didn't care about the plight of the Native Americans. This has to be the most extreme example of that, and it's a clear indicator that it wasn't always that way. The attacks on settlers during the summer of 1868 and the military response seems to have been a tipping point in public opinion. For some context on that, let's look at the advertisements near the back of this issue. Westward, the star of empire takes its way. Secure a home in the Golden State. The Immigrant Homestead Association of California. Incorporated under the laws of the state, November 30, 1867, for the purpose of providing homes for its members and promoting immigration. Capital stock, $1 million. Divided in 200,000 shares at $5 each, payable in U.S. currency. Certificates of stock issued to subscribers immediately upon receipt of the money. No person allowed to hold more than five shares. Circular containing a full description of the property to be distributed among the shareholders will be sent to any address upon receipt of stamps to cover return postage. Information as to price of land in any portion of the state or upon any other subject of interest to parties proposing to immigrate cheerfully furnished upon receipt of stamps for postage. All letters should be addressed, Secretary, Immigrant Homestead Association, Post Office Box Number 86, San Francisco, California. Hugh here. Now I want you to take a moment to look at the show notes. Scroll down to the page of advertisements and find the article I just read. Westward, the Star of Empire Takes Its Way. It's right at the top of the middle column. Now, look to the left. Soak in that Union Pacific Railroad advertisement that fills the entire left column. 
It's way too long and dry for me to read, but I want you to understand the financial weight of the Union Pacific Railroad at this point in United States history and feel how that weight deformed the fabric of the country as it was woven. I've been following along with 1868 newspapers all year, and advertisements like this one were ubiquitous. It's hard to overstate the effect that the opening of California to railroads had on the country. To get a good sense of how the Union Pacific dovetailed with local culture and industry, see episode 20. For now, just understand that at this point, the murderous U.S. policy of displacing Native Americans onto reservations has been going on for 40 years. The development of the Union Pacific and the deployment of the U.S. military to protect settlers and Union Pacific employees worsened an already terrible situation. For more information on the Trail of Tears and its aftermath, follow the link in the show notes. So, there's your context. And now, on to the interview. Here we are at the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Center with Sally Rush Wagner, director. Hi. Hi. And we're actually sitting in Matilda Jocelyn Gage's library. No. This is oh, where wow. she did her work. And if you look over to the window, there is a place near the bottom on the glass where Susan B. Anthony scratched her name uh, when they were in this room working on the history of women's suffrage. Wow. They, along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the three leaders of the National Women's Suffrage Association, the leadership triumvirate they've been identified, um, they edited the first three volumes of the history of women's suffrage. And so those are on the wall over here in the library, in the very room where much of the first three volumes were written. Fantastic. It's it helps me to connect with history to have some some artifact that I can actually put my hand on. And you're like sitting that. in the middle of an artifact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the building itself, mm-hmm. take me back to the history of this building mm-hmm. in the context of the Underground Railroad. Yes. Matilda Jocelyn Gage was pregnant with her third child. Uh-huh. And she took the message of freedom to heart. She and her husband Henry were both strong abolitionists and they offered this home as a station on the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. That meant uh, up to six months in jail if you were identified as having committed that crime and also a thousand dollar fine and that was a thousand for each of the freedom takers that you gave sanctuary to gage wrote publicly in the woman's rights newspaper that she edited much later Mm -hmm. it was the proudest moment of my life wow when we when i said yes and when was that this we will offer this home And when was that? It was in, they moved into the house in 1854. And the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850. And that was the act that said that you would be imprisoned and have this fine. Yes. If you assisted anyone that was taking their freedom. So she, 
her her act of getting involved in that was mm-hmm. contemporaneous with Moses Summers and the the Jerry Rescue. Yes, yes, which was in fifty one. Yes, and her father wrote. It's just as well I was out of town because I would have been part of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, I believe none of the actors in that rescue ended up getting prosecuted, correct? No. You know what happened? There were 13, I believe, that were, um, that were indicted. Mm-hmm. None of them went to jail. Yeah. Two of them went to Congress. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> this was... The Jerry Rescue is one of the most magnificent stories I know yeah. in history. Uh, it's when people came together, black and white, men and women, young and old, and uh, when when the richest landowner in the state of New York, Garrett Smith, and the Unitarian minister... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Samuel J. May, and I think the third one was a hardware store owner. When they weren't indicted, they took an ad out in the newspaper saying, uh-huh. we were part of the conspiracy. So do, it was... Do you know what newspaper that was? Uh, it must have been the Standard. I, the need, to, I need to Standard. look for that. Yeah. I need to look for that. No, That's they great. said, yeah. we want... You know, it was just... It was... The Washington papers wrote... Syracuse is in a state of rebellion. Uh-huh. We need to bring in the National Guard. Yeah, I mean, That's the legacy we have that's in fantastic. this community. So, of course, we're a sanctuary city. We would dishonor our ancestors if we were not a yeah. sanctuary city. Yeah. I remember reading that Moses Summers kept a link of Jerry's chain on him. Ah. Do you know whether anyone still has that? You know, that I don't know about. What I do know is that when the, when they when they got him out of the jail, you know, and they mm-hmm. broke into the jail, mm-hmm. got him out, they took him to uh, the African-American community. Two young girls made the queen's chair, you know, when they hold hands and oh, make yeah. a chair. Yeah. And they took him into the house. They got a hold of a um, blacksmith to come in and cut off the shackles oh. and the, uh, yeah. And and he said his hands were shaking uh-huh. because he knew that he could be indicted for treason yeah. for having done that. Because yes. the government, fearing that the Syracuse would actually rebel and not, you know, yeah. obey the Fugitive Slave Act, Daniel Webster, who was the Secretary of State, came uh, six months before the Jerry Rescue and uh-huh. said, "If that law that law will be will be enforced in Syracuse at the time of the next anti-slavery convention, if need be, and if anyone disobeys this law, it will be treason. Mm. It will be treason." Wow. He said it three times. It will be treason. And so here's this blacksmith, cut off the shackles, and you know what the women of Syracuse did? Sent him off to the president. Oh. Like, that's, in your face. That's great. <laughs> it's just a, I love that story. And I'm sure that just as in 1868, which is the era I'm focusing on, in 1851, the newspapers were just as polarized and, and oh, yeah. just as contributing to that, oh, yeah. that uh, flame war. Yeah. And there was a backlash in Syracuse. There Mm -hmm. were people who were absolutely opposed to 
you know, disobeying the law yeah. and, and and in favor of slavery. Yeah. But uh, you know, finally, you fight hard enough and you work hard enough and yeah. you win the battle for freedom. So, I'm always harping on context mm-hmm. in my podcast because the main reason I do this is that I've gotten fascinated at the lens of media because mm-hmm. when we look at history through mm-hmm. 150 years in hindsight yeah. at at news and uh, sources that have been recast over and over and over we get such a profoundly different sense of people than we would if we went back and read the primary sources mm-hmm or newspapers of the yeah. time. I, I get a very different picture mm-hmm. of people. So I'm trying to get a sense of of how Matilda Jocelyn Gage and her husband would have felt within that media context. Yeah. And it sounds like they would have been very scared, but they also would have felt that they, they had a certain demographic who had their backs. You know, no one would have offered their home as a station on the Underground Railroad if there had not been a movement. Yeah. And they were part of the anti-slavery movement. Yeah. And that's how we ended slavery. Abraham Lincoln, yeah. he never ended slavery. We yeah. pushed him. Mm-hmm. The, the activists pushed him to a point that he had to issue and, the proclamation. And, and didn't and, he more or less say that? Or am I thinking of somebody else that he, he wanted to be did, pushed? Really, I don't remember if Lincoln did, but Frederick Douglass said, "Power concedes nothing without a demand." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I've always had the sense that Lincoln was amenable to being pushed, mm-hmm. but he wasn't going mm-hmm. to go ahead and, and stick his neck too far out because mm-hmm. he he didn't want to lose the presidency. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I mean, Obama made it clear to us, I'll be as good a president as you push me to be. Yeah, nobody so, sticks their neck out too far, because you've got to expend political capital yeah. in order to do that. And if you expend too much political capital, well, some other guy who may not mm-hmm. be as on your side yeah. is going to occupy the office. That's mm-hmm. the paradox of history that fascinates me the most, is every leader has had to grapple with how much of a bad guy do I have to be in order to prevent a worse guy from taking mm-hmm. power? Yeah, I think Queen Elizabeth or any any of the the, the rulers in the 1600s who had devout members of the Catholic League waiting in the wings, mm-hmm. wanting to institute an iron grip on their culture. Well, these guys do do I rule as a nice guy? And get kicked out of office because people don't like mm-hmm. nice guys? Mm-hmm. Or do I be not so much of a nice guy nice in order to toe to the line? Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a very Western problem. Yeah. Um, Gage studied the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations of the Iroquois. Uh-huh. The French called them the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And what she learned from that was... There is a whole different way of making decisions. There uh-huh. is a whole different way that doesn't create a win-lose. Right. You know, right. The if you work with consensus, you don't have that unstable system. We have an inherently unstable political system because when you have winners and losers, you always have somebody who's discontent. Uh, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy 
20 minutes away from here is the center at Onondaga. Mm -hmm. They've been making decisions by consensus for a thousand years. You know, our next door neighbors have a much superior, Gage said, political system to what we have. And that system may take longer to make decisions. But once you make a decision and you learn to listen differently, you don't listen to argue that you're wrong and I'm right. You listen to find what in that other person's, you know, somebody who has an idea opposing mine, what is it in their idea that I can pull in, that I can draw from, that I can find a common ground with? And eventually you work long enough you can yeah. find consensus, but you can't do it in the hierarchical system that we have. We have to change the hierarchical system. And that's what Gage was absolutely clear about. She was an enemy of patriarchy. Yeah. And her model was native indigenous cultures and governments. I'm going to recast what you said because it feels like you're speaking my language. Hmm. One of my bugaboos is it's not a zero-sum game. Yeah. I, I reject the very notion mm-hmm. of a zero-sum game because it makes us think in those terms of, well, mm-hmm. in order for me to win, somebody else has, somebody to, lose. has to lose. If and, I'm going to be on the top, somebody has to be on the bottom. And I just don't agree that that's mm-hmm. the way the universe works. I think we can all get what we want without anybody necessarily mm-hmm. being wrong or losing. And it's not a matter of I believe this or I don't believe that. I mean, indigenous people continue to do this, and yeah. they've done it since longer than you know, the 500 years of dominance that the Western world has created. And the concept of dialectic. Mm -hmm. I I don't believe many people even think in terms of dialectic, much Mm -hmm. much less value it Mm -hmm. today. And it sounds like you're talking about they they had dialectic in their sights. They have. Yeah. It's not past tense. You know, we're we're celebrating... In New York State last year and nationally in 2020, mm-hmm. women having political voice for a hundred years. Yeah. Women next door to us have had political voice and continue to for a thousand years. And that's that's a little bit humbling. Wow. <laughs> to realize that. Yeah. And of course, you know, we don't learn history. We don't learn the truth of our past. And so we continue the same system. We continue the same problems. Yeah. History isn't what happened. It's who tells the story. Wow. And the story <laughs> is told in the interest of those with power, in power. You know, it's just basically fake news. Historiography is my focus and i i would have said exactly what you just said about my my fascination with historiography is based on there's a story mm-hmm. and then there's what really happened yeah the difference between those two things tells mm-hmm. us so much about who we are as yeah. a people and the stories that we want to tell and mm-hmm. the stories we want to be told mm-hmm. that that tells us a lot about us and you know coming back to the 60s your interest i think it was all those liberation movements that emerged in the 60s mm-hmm. that really demanded we have a past we have a history mm-hmm. we have a story that's part of the american story yes. and it will be told and yes. we will tell it that's a good segue to i wanted to ask you to to paint me a picture of the relationship between seneca falls Mm -hmm. syracuse and the broader world 
because I know that mm-hmm. Syracuse was the, the major local industrial base, and it was a base of three powerful journalistic uh, centers, the, the Courier, the Standard, and the Journal. And there were tons and, of other little ones. Yeah. You know, there's a Fayetteville recorder. There yeah. are all kinds of religious newspapers. Yeah. The average New Yorker in the 19th century had five newspapers they subscribed to. You know, they had much more news then than we have now. Unless no. you count the Internet. Now, what were the and two the besides the three I mentioned? You know, I'm trying to remember. The religious recorder was one, and oh. some they lasted for small periods of time. Okay. Gage's father edited the Carson League paper. Okay. There were anti-slavery papers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can't off the top of my right. head tell you all okay. of them. Maybe, maybe they weren't operating in '68 because I haven't noticed any references within the the Journal, the Courier, and the Standard to any other. No, they papers. they didn't necessarily re. <laughs> refer okay. to each other, yeah. Well, those three definitely did because yeah, there were a lot of snarky interchanges yes, between the yeah. two. Yeah, there's the the rivalry. No, there. I, I think it was like in in the uh, the 1960s when you know we were so fed up with what the media was doing mm-hmm. that we created our own uh, underground yeah. newspapers, and I think that was similar in the 1860s mm-hmm. or the that time period 1830 1860 so the the, the women suffrage movement mm-hmm. uh, accreted in in Seneca Falls well and, actually and... I just finished an anthology a suffrage anthology uh-huh. for penguin classics that will be out next February mm-hmm. and it begins not with Seneca Falls it begins with the Haudenosaunee and then it moves to, I mean, that's, if we're going to look at women's rights, uh-huh. I mean, are we going to just going to say it's only white women? No. Sure. I mean, there is the model. And Gage and Stanton were deeply influenced by the Haudenosaunee. I mm. mean, they, they don't even have the right to their own children. Husbands could will away unborn children in New York State. Yeah. And they know women who, you know, the lineage is through the mother. Uh, every single thing. They can't own property. These are women who have their own property. They have no political voice. These are women who have political voice. Mm-hmm. Gage gets arrested in 1893 for voting in a school board election. Uh-huh. Same year she's given an honorary adoption <sighs> into the Wolf Clan of the Mohawk Nation, given a real name. It's an honorary adoption, uh-huh. but a real name. And she writes to her daughter, my, my clan sisters are considering me for a voice in the council of matrons that would give her a voice in the saying in the choosing of the chief by that whole consensus model she's wow. arrested in her nation for voting you know and she's given an honorary adoption in an indigenous nation mm-hmm. where women have had political voice forever um you know it's they were deeply influenced so the story begins with native women the yeah. occupants that's the lie of history White people began history. Yeah. So then it goes to the anti-slavery uh, women's, the female anti-slavery societies. Mm-hmm. Women organized before men did. And before the American anti-slavery society. And you know what the first anti-slavery, female anti-slavery society was? No. African-American women in Boston. Uh-huh. So there's a whole legacy. By the time Seneca Falls comes along, it's, it's you know, chance. It's really just a result of chance. Mm-hmm. Lucretia Mott, who met uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton in England when they were there at the, uh, uh, the first... Um, 
uh, World Anti-Slavery Convention, women are excluded as delegates. They've been sent as delegates from their organizations, and the Brits and the clergy say, no, you can't, because, uh -huh. you know, the Bible says women are not to speak in public, be in the pulpit, so that means anywhere it would be, <laughs> you know, whatever. So they're, they're not allowed to take part mm -hmm. in the convention, which really pisses them off, you yeah. know, as it should. Sure. So then Lucretia Mott is in Waterloo visiting some of her Quaker friends. These are Quaker friends who have been involved in the female anti-slavery society. They know how to organize. They know how to how to you know chair a meeting. They know they they're experienced activists, yeah. and they meet with Elizabeth Cady Stanton for tea, and they say, yeah, "Let's have a convention," mm -hmm. and so they have the first local women's rights convention. Wow. Um, but but the hotbed of radical reform, it's not chance that it happened here, because the hotbed of radical reform was throughout Haudenosaunee territory. Oh. And I think it's like white people seeing indigenous people living a more a superior lifestyle to mm -hmm. the one they have. You know, Aunt Dinah's over a hundred and she's coming into Syracuse, walking into Syracuse huh. from the Onondaga Nation daily. Every home is open to her. You know, these are stories in the papers and is she a hundred and four now? Is she a hundred and seven? How mm -hmm. old is she? And um you know, people are dying in Syracuse at 58 because you know, yeah. they're eating salt pork and drinking whiskey. And, yeah. you know, and the folks at Onondaga are eating nutritionally perfect food, corned beans and squash. And they're living twice as long. Yeah. So you live next to neighbors who, you know, are happier, have better lifestyle in all ways. Mm -hmm. You're going to pick up some of what they're doing. That's why I think all of... Food reform, dress reform, um, anti-slavery, women's rights, temperance, um, you know, religious reform, that all happened here. And I don't think it's chance that it was, you know, you're living among people who do it better. Okay, so I, I was thinking in terms of the media and the industrial base, but you're saying it's much more the involvement of the Onondaga Nation. I not even involvement. It's there. It's the, it's yeah. throughout. You know, this whole upstate New York was. We're we're in Onondaga territory here, yeah. but New York State is all yeah. uh, Haudenosaunee territory, and so you have, you know. People coming into a settled area, that's the lie of the, the you know, vast unoccupied spaces. Mm -hmm. And no, there were highly developed civilizations everywhere the invaders came. Well, the fact that the Monroe Doctrine was so readily embraced necessitates a degree of mental shuffling mm -hmm. yeah. indigenous people's under the carpet. Yeah. Uh, the the degree to which people were capable of that it it there are echoes of that throughout oh, histories and I see echoes whenever I read newspapers mm -hmm. from from that period it's almost as though we need to repeat these patterns and we need to tell us the same tell ourselves the same lies in order yeah. to make ourselves feel better. Are White we, supremacy, entitlement, all of that. And it begins with the doctrine of discovery. You know, when Columbus comes with, with um, 
papal bulls saying that if land isn't occupied by Christians, mm-hmm. it's not occupied. Yeah. And that that gives the justice to the invasion. And that's still the basis of our law. That was used by Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh. in a case in 2000, I think it was 2002, Cheryl versus the United Nations. Uh-huh. And it begins with saying the doctrine of discovery is the basis of our law. Wow. My mind is going back to a book I read years and years ago called The Gilded Dinosaur. It's mm. about these two guys, Cope and Marsh, who were uh, paleontologists who developed a sort of pissing contest to be the biggest and the best paleontologist. And there was a chapter about Grant, and it was heartbreaking. Speaking of political capital, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it was Marsh who was very sympathetic toward the Native Americans, and he went to Washington to try to get Cope on his side and and enact legislation that would allow them to not be massacred basically and grant ended up he he was sympathetic but in the end he felt that the the tide of society was just too strong for him and it, it was again an, a, a story of a politician not being forced to do Selling what do the right thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it's an interesting grand story that Matilda Jocelyn Gage wrote, uh, who planned the Tennessee campaign, in which she presents <clears throat> some pretty compelling documentation uh, from the male uh, leaders at the time in the Senate, in the uh, administration, that actually the Tennessee campaign campaign was planned by a woman, Anna oh. Ella Carroll. Uh huh. And Grant got the credit, sure. and Anna Ella Carroll died basically penniless. Yeah, there's an awful lot of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you mentioned whiskey. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by the the interplay between the women's suffrage movement and the temperance movement. The temperance movement yeah. What was Gage's involvement in that? Well, when uh, in 1876, uh, Frances Willard received a visitation from God in which she was instructed to work for women's suffrage uh, in order to create a Christian nation. And this is Frances Willard's story. She's the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Gage sees her as the most dangerous woman in America because she's charismatic and she wants to destroy religious liberty, the, the wall of separation right. between church and state. And... Um, when Susan B. Anthony affects a merger and does it pretty much on her own, Gage documents it, between the more progressive national women's suffrage association that Stanton Anthony Gage and <clears throat> the more progressive women are part of, and the American Women's Suffrage Association, which is a more traditional, you know, sort of middle of the road yeah. group. Um, don't don't rock the boat too much. Yep. Uh, while the National Women's Suffrage Association is impeaching the government for its mm-hmm. treatment of women with their Declaration of Rights of Women, which they mm-hmm. present illegally at the July Fourth, eighteen seventy six centennial celebration. Uh-huh. While they're doing that, the American Women's Suffrage Association is having a tea party. Yeah. So I think that sort of epitomizes the difference. Anthony wants everybody to work for the vote, 
at a time when Stanton and Gage are thinking, you know what, we really need to go after the, the foundation of our oppression, which is the Christian teaching that we are to be subordinate to men. Yeah. That, you know, from, from when Eve screws it up with the apple <laughs> and, and God says, okay, you are going to be under the authority of men and give birth um, in pain and sorrow mm-hmm. through all the way to St. Paul. Women are to be under the authority of men. Yeah. And that's taken very seriously by all of Christianity at that point. And so Gage and, and Stanton are, be, are increasingly saying, no, you know what, unless we deal with this enemy, mm-hmm. we are always going to have this problem. They are always going to be fighting against women's freedom in yeah. one form or another because they fought against our wearing trousers. They fought against our wanting to get the vote because it would upset God's divine plan if women made decisions politically. What if they opposed their husbands? You know, yeah. so so at this point, Gage and Stanton are increasingly saying, "No, we need to fight the church." Mm-hmm. Stan Anthony is saying, "No, we need to bring everybody together to work for the vote mm-hmm. and forget all the other issues. We'll take care of those later." She is able to bring the two organizations together in 1890 right? 1889 yeah. 89 okay. and then 90 is when it's it's official gage tries to undo it is yeah. unable to and drops out of the movement and the movement becomes racist yeah. in policy yeah. they begin to make the argument give women the vote because white women outnumber negroes and immigrants both yeah. men and women and women's suffrage is a way to maintain white native-born supremacy. Wow. And that becomes policy of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. I document that thoroughly in my new anthology. And so Gage is out by then. It's like she will not be part of this organization. Mm -hmm. And she forms her own organization to fight the church in its traditional uh, orthodox form and also to fight against the attempt to merge church and state and and the uh, group works to maintain the separation yeah so um, of the three gage was the most radical absolutely yeah. yeah there's no question now was that across the board or more in terms of religion in every single uh-huh. issue uh-huh. yeah i think you know she's Oh, for an example, when the chiefs meet in council mm-hmm. at Onondaga in 1878 to consider a um, law that the New York State legislature is considering yeah. that would give the vote to Indian men, Gage, in her woman suffrage paper, writes an editorial saying, um, you know, the chiefs have met at Onondaga as they have met since before Columbus and they have said absolutely we will not accept citizenship in New York State or the United States Mm -hmm. and she goes on to say they are sovereign nations every bit as much as Canada and Mexico and to force citizenship on on these nations native nations would be like forcing it on Canada and Mexico. What was the political reason for them wanting to force citizenship on them? Gage said the better to steal their lands. That's what she says in her editorial. 
Oh. And she says, "What's look at this hypocrisy. The government is trying to force citizenship on Indian men who don't want it, yeah. the better to steal their lands, while it is denying it to women citizens who want it, who are demanding it. Right. You know, look at this hypocrisy. So this goes beyond anything that Stanton or Anthony ever would have done. Right. Anthony is way, way the most conservative. And then Stanton sort of, you know, she's kind of there in the middle. She at first opposes the merger. She's going with Gage with the the organization she forms. And then she ends up accepting the presidency of the National American. Well, maybe I can change him from within. Well, she doesn't. They end yeah. up denouncing her woman's Bible. Huh. So she gets, you know, taken advantage of by the organization that she was the former president of. Huh. So, speaking of radicalism versus conservatism, mm -hmm. this is when I talk about historiography, I find it fascinating the the ways in which the story that gets told diverges from mm -hmm. what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that brought me here was I went to the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation website, mm -hmm. and uh, I was surprised to find that Gage was in the NWSA, mm -hmm. right, as opposed to the AWSA. And the reason was, given her passion for Negro suffrage at the time, I expected her to be on Lucy Stone's mm -hmm. side because Lucy Stone was the one who insisted on, no, we need to fight for the, the 15th Amendment as well. as It's the 14th and the 15th, it's, right? The yeah, 14th was the women. It's the Negro's hour. Yes. We'll, we'll yes. sit back and wait. And, and I think that that story is more complicated than historians have talked about. The way I understand it is that it, you know, the, the National Women Suffrage Association, or the, it wasn't the NWSA yet, it was, but it was the, um, the yearly conventions that the mm -hmm. movement was having. They merged into the, um, the American Equal Rights Society. They merged with the Anti-Slavery Society. Mm -hmm. And they became this merged organization working for universal suffrage. And then through a whole series of things, the, the abolitionists and the radical, especially the radical Republicans in Congress, sold out the women. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, yeah. Theodore Tilton said, look, this is a moment when this is the the doors of freedom have swung open mm -hmm. wide enough for the woman and the negro to walk through arm in arm and what they did was they slammed the door shut on women yeah. and it wasn't just that they didn't do universal suffrage they put male citizens in the constitution for the first time yeah. three times in the 14th amendment because they couldn't figure out how they could put in the enabling legislation or the, you know, the, the look south, you have to let African-American men mm -hmm. vote. Right. And they didn't figure out how they could do that without putting male in front of citizens. If they would have said just citizens, women could have also been able to vote. And, and so the Constitution, which up until that point was gender neutral, 
now said that only men are citizens. And so it set women back. I think um, Robert Purvis, who was an African-American activist, said, I would rather, I have a son and a daughter, I would rather for my son to wait 50 years to get the vote than that my daughter wait one more minute. Because as a Negro and as a woman, she is doubly in need of the protection of the ballot. But I fault the radical Republicans for that. Uh They, They were gutless. They could have pushed. It might have taken longer. But... You know, and I know historians will argue with that and say, no, no, expediency was needed at that point. Well, I don't know. You know, yeah. do you do you injure one group in order to exalt another group? Yeah. And a group that's worked together cohesively, mm-hmm. that was an incredible power. Yeah. And I, it broke it apart. Exactly. And this is what makes me so sad when I see the pattern repeated throughout history of one Two groups that would be so powerful if they united, mm-hmm. being split apart by the conditions that they're, by the the competition for, yeah, for political uh, resources. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, prime example being the blacks and the Irish during and after the Civil War, mm-hmm. especially. Yeah. Imagine the power of those if two groups if they'd yeah. gotten together, but the system of power <sighs> encourages dissent, dissent between them and schism. And, and works to have that. So the tipping point, I think, is we reach a point where working people, women, people of color, um, you know, we all, everyone who is oppressed joins together. Yeah. We can create democracy. Yeah. We can really create democracy in this country. There's some, there's some, you know, the foundation in ways was laid imperfectly, mm-hmm. but the conditions are possible, but not with the hierarchical power over yeah. system that we have. So I'm going to go to 1867 because I'm fascinated mm-hmm. with trying to get my head into the space of someone living at that time. Mm-hmm. 67 was around the time when the cracks started to show between what would eventually become the division between the NWSA and mm-hmm. the NASA. NWSA and the AWSA. Uh-huh. Yeah. The language that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were mm-hmm. using in public went from. It, it went, was racist. It started to become it racist. It was. No, it then, didn't start to Well, in 67. It was straight up racist. By, by 69, okay, it, yeah. by 69 okay. it was really foul. And there were certain couching terms that they used. They were. They did. Add the caveat that the differences were because of a lack of an opportunity for education. But be that as it may, Mm -hmm. what they were saying by 1869 was foul. And at that time, Lucy Stone was starting to stand back and say, what are you doing? We should be together on this. We, we, We can't act like this. And then Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony went their own way and Lucy mm-hmm. Stone went her way. And when I first ran into this, I thought, how could someone who was so, so deeply involved in the Underground Railroad and the Negro suffrage movement, how could she have chosen that side? Put me in the headspace of somebody at that time. Well, I think that, that you know, the complication comes when, okay, they take money Stanton and Anthony take money from George Francis' train. 
Yes. <laughs> Crane is as racist as you can get. Um, he's upfront about it. He's makes no bones about it. But they take money from him because the American Anti-Slavery Society, the, um, was it the Hovey Fund? I think it was the Hovey Fund, was uh, the largest donation to the movement by that point. And it was done in the 50s, and it was that once slavery is abolished, the money should go to the other issues, like women's rights. And they won't give the money to uh, Stanton and Anthony for the Kansas campaign. And Frain, George Francis Strain comes in and says, I'll fund you, I'll fund a newspaper, you know, I'll do the whole thing. And they say, um, yep, and they accept the money. And they, when they're criticized, they say, well, look, are we any worse because we're with an upfront racist mm -hmm. than the organization that should be giving us money and mm -hmm. support mm -hmm. because they say that they're for women's rights, but they won't act on it. Yeah. And so, you know, are they justified in their racism? Absolutely not. Yeah. But the conditions at the time and, and the American, the people that are going with the American... Lucy Stone is married to Henry Blackwell. In 1868, Blackwell sends a note to Southern legislators saying, "Give, look, you're you're in a you're between a rock and a hard place. You there's going to be Negro male suffrage, so get used to it. You want to know how you can counter it? Give women the vote. Uh -huh. And if you give women the vote, there's going to be more white women." And they're going to be able to outnumber the Negro men that are getting, and and that's a way to maintain white supremacy. So, you know, Lucy Stone is married to this guy who's making this argument. Yeah. So, you know, racism. There's enough racism here to go around, and and the reality is that the National is not just Stanton and Anthony. It's the progressive women. It's uh -huh. all the progressive women go with the the national and the American when they form a few months later, it's really the more you know Christian conservative women that are part of that organization. You and just, so they go in very different directions. Yeah, and and you just used the word conservative, which is so fascinating to me that um, that caused a, a cognitive dissonance when I first heard about the, mm -hmm. the schism because I approached it by way of a Wikipedia article that said the, the, uh, the AWSA was the conservative and the NWSA was the other side. I don't know if they use the word radical, but the idea mm -hmm. in my head became, oh, conservative radical, false dichotomy. Mm. And I said to myself, wait a minute, if the cons why, why would you consider the conservative side mm -hmm. the side that was insisting on black yeah. suffrage? But... Yeah. The whole use of the word conservative has different connotations today mm -hmm. than it would have had at that time. And when you view history through that lens, you can get... I mean, sometimes those those differences that we notice in historiography don't happen because of any nefarious intent. They happen because the language shifts. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we form narrative based narratives based on our modern connotations. Yeah. Yeah. And being conservative meant a very different thing yeah. back then. Well, and radical meant a very different thing. You know, when when... 
the the abolitionists called themselves radical abolitionists the women called themselves you know radical reformers mm-hmm. and what they meant was they used the deadly upas i'm not sure how it's pronounced tree upas tree uh-huh. and it's a poisonous tree and mm-hmm. they say okay how can you get rid of the upas tree of oppression well, if you cut off the limbs and make just minor reforms, mm-hmm. what's going to happen? The tree of oppression is going to grow deeper. The yeah. roots are going to grow deeper, yeah. and it's going to be more entrenched. What you have to do is to dig it out by the roots, mm-hmm. hence radical. Yeah. That's where the term came from. And um, there was a British woman, I'm trying to think of her name, who actually was the first to call for immediate, unconditional emancipation. Yeah. And um, and that was the radical analysis. We have to dig slavery out at the roots. Yeah. And that was, you know, the conservative position was um, um, the Shipham, you know, each, you can buy your own slave and you can free them and ship them back to Liberia. Uh-huh. This is the best thing in the world for slave owners uh-huh. because it gets rid of the free blacks that are the vision of, you know, slavery is a social condition. It's not a biological state. Yeah. And it also ups the price of each individual slave. So that colonization uh-huh. scheme was it was a you know proposes an anti-slavery position but it actually all it did was strengthen oh. slavery the institution of slavery and so yeah. they said no we have to dig it out at the roots immediate yeah. unconditional yeah. no giving the slave owners money for yeah. the slaves that are freed huh that was another thing that was considered yeah so that was the radical abolitionist position yeah I remember trying to explain radical to Matilda Jocelyn Gage's <laughs> granddaughter, uh-huh. who was, because I'd used the term to describe her yeah. grandmother in something I'd published. And uh, and she said, what do you mean, my grandmother? <laughs> this really deep, booming voice yeah. in her 90s. Uh-huh. What do you mean, my grandmother was a radical? Oh, boy. So I explained this to her in the way I just you yeah. know, did. And uh, she said... Well, I wish you would explain that to my friends, <laughs> her Episcopalian friends, uh-huh. who would have, yeah. But I think that's a, you know, a, a misuse of the term radical today, when yeah. it's used also, you know, in terms of tactics, and it's yeah. used for the right as well as the left. Never should be used for the right. Do it you means think a, it means getting rid of oppression at its roots? Right. Historically. Right. Now, I think it would be a mistake for me to assume that this started in the 1960s, but I have a sense that uh, the way the Nixon administration tied intentionally mm-hmm. the uh, the hippie movement to the drugs to the uh, civil rights movement and, and basically made one demonized ball mm-hmm. of hippies and blacks and drug users, I have the sense that that's when the term radical became poisoned. Became, yeah, I think it may have. And, and it was the anti-war movement as well. Yeah. And it was J. Edgar Hoover and, yeah. 
I have uh, the thing I'm most proud of in my own personal life is that in my FBI file, which I got through the uh -huh. Freedom of Information Act, there's a form letter uh, signed by J. Edgar Hoover uh -huh. in which I am identified as a potentially dangerous woman. Wow. I have spent my life trying to live up to J. Edgar Hoover's expectations <laughs> of me. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up George Francis Train mm -hmm. because of all the people I've learned about in the 19th century, he is the most fascinating to mm. me because he was such, such a profound scumbag and yet he... He, he had some kind of allure that I still can't define. Because when I read the words that he said, it really sounds like absolute nonsense, mm -hmm. yet he must have had some kind of charisma that doesn't come across on the page. And as I understand it, at the time, he was every bit as, as famous as Mark Twain. But he's not remembered mm -hmm. that well. And I, I, I suspect that just people were... A certain percentage of people were embarrassed enough by him so that his legacy faded more quickly than other public figures. I don't, I never I, know how to uh, think about Trent. I don't know. If, um, hey, uh, okay, so sometimes there are analogs in history, huh? And uh, so you have a, a, a guy, a New York real estate guy who appeals to the working class by basically saying drain the swamp mm -hmm. who um just is is sort of um you know a destructive force but he's really compelling because he he is so out there in terms of his racism and yeah. he is so out there in terms of the the hate language that he uses, yeah. that he almost draws people to him and compels people to, to yeah. um, you know, it's almost a, a, a dangerous charisma. Yeah. Um, not that we have anybody like that. Oh, he also had aspirations to um, be president of the United yeah. States. Yeah, well, he ran. So, I don't know yeah. if he ever was serious about yeah. it, but he ran. But you know, it's it's of course we don't have anyone like that. In uh, fortunately, we don't have anybody like that today. Yeah. In our uh, in our country, that could do a great deal of damage. Yeah. With George Francis Train type hate. Yeah, uh, that I drew that exact analog in in a previous episode. I haven't devoted any full episodes yet to him, which I'm going to do, but I went into him in some detail on my, my episode about the women's suffrage movement. Because of what you mentioned about his, I, I'm, I still haven't figured out whether he meant at all what he said about caring about the women's suffrage movement for itself, or whether it was all about using it as a tool against black enfranchisement. Mm -hmm. I can't tell with him. I don't know if he meant a word he said or whether there were wheels within wheels. And that's part of what becomes so compelling with a character like that yeah. is that maybe there is no plan. Yeah. Maybe there is a plan. Maybe there is a narcissism. System. Maybe there is a, a you know, a, a, a mental illness here. Yeah. And, and it's like almost being drawn to a train wreck. Yeah. You know, what's going on here? 
And I, I think there may be no solution, which is mm-hmm. why it's so compelling. And then the crowning irony, without his money, the revolution wouldn't have existed, mm-hmm. correct? But Matilda Jocelyn Gage, their paper only existed two years. Yeah. Um, and I think another piece of history that needs to be corrected is that it wasn't Stanton and Anthony's paper. It was edited by Stanton and Parker Pillsbury. Uh-huh. And it was published by Susan B. Anthony. Mm-hmm. And Pillsbury gets written out of history. He's mm-hmm. a very important character. He was, along with Samuel J. May, one of the few men that they said, always these men were with us. Yeah. Speaking of the revolution, you mm-hmm. sent me this article, which is very timely. It's almost exactly 150 years ago <laughs> this week. Mm-hmm. This is a letter that was published in the revolution from Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Is woman her own? Revolution, April 9th, 1868, page 215 to 16. Editors of Revolution, the short article on child murder in your paper of March 12th touched a subject which lies deeper down into women's wrongs than any other. This is the denial of the right to herself. In no historic age of the world has woman yet had that. From the time when Moses, for the hardness of his heart, permitted the Jew husband to give his unpleasing wife a letter of divorcement, to Christ, when the seven male sinners brought to him for condemnation the woman taken in adultery, down through the Christian centuries to this nineteenth, nowhere has the marital union of the sexes been one in which woman has had control over her own body. Enforced motherhood is a crime against the body of the mother and the soul of the child. Medical jurisprudence has begun to accumulate facts on this point, showing how the condition and feelings of the mother mold not only the physical and mental qualities of the child, but its moral nature. Women keep silence upon many points, not breathing their thoughts to their dearest friends because of their inner reticence, a quality they possess greatly in excess of men. And, too, custom has taught them to bear in silence." But the crime of abortion is not one in which the guilt lies solely, or even chiefly, with the women. As a child brings more care, so also it brings more joy to the mother's heart. Husbands do not consult with their wives upon this subject of deepest and most vital interest. Do not look at the increase of family in a physiological, moral, or spiritual light, but almost solely from a money standpoint. It costs. Tens of thousands of husbands and fathers throughout this land are opposed to large families, and yet so deeply implanted is the sin of self-gratification that consequences are not considered while selfish desire controls the heart. Much is said of the wild, mad desire of the ages for money. Money is but another name for power. It is but another name for bread. It is but another name for freedom. And those who possess it not are the slaves of those who do. How many states in the Union grant the wife an equal right with the husband to control and dispose of the property of the marital firm? How long is it since a married woman in this state had the right to control of her own separate property? Barely twice ten years. How long since she could control her own earnings, even those of a day's washing? Not yet ten. History is full of the wrongs done the wife by legal robbery on the part of the husband. I need not quote instances. They are well known to the most casual newspaper reader. It is accepted as a self-evident truth 
that those who are not masters of any property may easily be formed into any mold. I hesitate not to assert that most of this crime of child murder, abortion, infanticide, lies at the door of the male sex. Many a woman has laughed a silent, derisive laugh at the decisions of eminent medical and legal authorities in cases of crimes committed against her as a woman. Never, until she sits as juror on such trials, will or can just decisions be rendered. This reason and that reason have been pointed to by the upholders of equal rights to account for the oppression of women during past ages, but not one that I have ever heard offered has looked to the spiritual origin of that oppression. If my health and eyes enable me to do so, I shall be glad to write occasionally as you request. Perhaps a series of short articles upon the above point will be timely. Individual freedom is emphatically the lesson of the 19th century. Seeing the letter of Honorable William Hay of Saratoga in your last issue recalled very forcibly to my mind the Women's Rights Convention, gotten up in such an impromptu manner through his urging at Saratoga Springs 14 years ago the coming June, in which you, myself, and Miss Sarah Pellet were the only speakers. I remember my remarks then were especially directed to the absolute necessity of suffrage as the to the absolute necessity of suffrage as the only preservative of all other rights, a plank of the equal rights platform to which he so pointedly refers in his letter. Ah, well, Susan, the palpitations, half-hopes, half-fears of that day are past, and we have lived to see much change in public sentiment since then, and your energy, which was really the saving of the day, has carried you on and on till now you compel the world to be your listeners. I wish you could find some way to impeach the postboys or masters who take such great liberties with your papers. It must be in great demand, for I lose many numbers. Matilda E. J. Gage. The fascinating thing about that to me is I feel like it could have been written yesterday, mm-hmm. and that goes to show the myth of radicalism. Mm-hmm. I have accepted this picture from my own personal history that says, oh, starting in the 60s, these wild-eyed radicals with their new ideas that had never been tried before got a hold of things, and they're just trying to take us off the rails. Well, this was 150 years yeah. ago yeah. that people were espousing these ideas. It, mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't radical. Yeah. And how do we as a nation seemingly press a pause button that lasts a century? Because we don't know the history. <laughs> Because what if I had learned and you had learned in our education in public schools that women demanded the right to their own bodies 150 years ago? Would that have made a difference Sure. who we are? Yeah. yeah. And the important thing, I think, too, for me is that Stanton and Gage both had the position that um, they cared about the unborn. And they said, the most important right of every child is to be wanted and chosen. And that's when Gage says that about, you know, for a woman to birth an unwanted child is a crime against the mother. She's forced into childbirth and a sin against the soul of the child because every child born has the right to be wanted. Now that's a tactic, that's an approach that it seems to me is is a relevant possibility today. Yeah. You know? 
That's yeah. a, that's strategically to look at. Look, what are the effects if you're forced into childbirth, and you bring a child into the world that you're not physically, that you're not financially, that you're not you know socially ready to birth. What are, what happens to that child? Well, we know, you know, the studies are out there. Yeah. So if we begin with the right of the unborn. Mm-hmm. to be chosen that may be the most primary right as they suggested it seems better articulated than a lot of the rhetoric of today because mm-hmm. a lot of the rhetoric of today is purely oppositional mm-hmm. uh, it's just just sort of being against the other side whereas this is casting it in a this is a Again, it's not a zero a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. this is what we stand for: mm-hmm. the rights of the unborn mm-hmm. to be wanted. And you care about the rights of the unborn. We care about the rights yeah. of the unborn. Yeah. So what are those rights? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit Socratic. Going back to mm-hmm. what what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe a starting point for dialogue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We yeah. did actually in the Gage Center the. The museum world's, as far as we were told, first dialogue on reproductive choice. Mm. And uh, it brought together people with totally different ideas and views, and they ended up saying, this is so powerful. We didn't come to a decision that we agree on. Mm-hmm. You know, they met just for a month. Um, but, but we found the humanness in each other. And when was that? I missed it. It was um, twenty thirteen. I think we did it. Yeah, Uh, we got funding from a couple of different sources. We spent nine months developing the dialogue, Mm -hmm. and it was interesting because it was only women that volunteered Mm -hmm. to create the dialogue and facilitate um, the dialogue. And uh, then we had men who wanted to do it. So two of us worked with the men mm-hmm. in their dialogue. And it was really interesting um, because the men talked about, um, you know, one man said, you know, my wife and I made a choice to have an abortion and we've never told our family about it. Yeah. And we felt shame about it. And in the course of the dialogue, they, he and his wife decided that they would tell their children yeah. and tell their family yeah. about it. You know, because they decided that he decided, and then talked to her, and they decided together that that the silence is really damaging. That that we need to be talking about it. We need to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. We need to acknowledge it to those we're closest to. Sure. And in the vacuum of that silence, those who are of, of opposing rhetoric get to tell their own stories mm-hmm. and form their own narratives, mm-hmm. and we need to form our narrative. Mm-hmm. That covers everything I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else, any other stories you wanted to touch on? Oh, there's so many stories, but this has really been a fun adventure of sharing ideas with you. you it know, certainly you. has, and well, I appreciate your time. If people are interested in the Matilda Jocelyn Gage yes. Foundation, what's the best way to find out more? I would go to the website matildajocelyngage.org, and I'm going to spell that because people traditionally spell Jocelyn wrong. So it's M-A-T-I-L-D-A-J-O-S-L-Y-N-G-A-G-E.org. 
Gage and Matilda are a little bit easier, but that J-O-S-L-Y-N throws people off. So really encourage you to uh, check out the website and then come visit. Thank you. And the center is right here on Route 5 in Fayetteville, and I have to confess, I passed it by many times without seeing the sign. So look for the sign whenever you're driving through Fayetteville and stop in. Corner of Walnut and Genesee, and thousands of people drive by every day, and they come in finally when their relatives come to visit, Uh and they say, I've driven by this house a thousand times, and I never knew it was here and never realized. So thank you for helping us get the word out. Well, thank you. It was a lovely conversation. Thanks. Well, that's it. My second interview. Boy, that was fun. I'm grateful to Sally Rush Wagner for being such a fantastic interviewee. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks for listening. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love he's stolen away.